Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. Anna, have you ever seen a ghost? I think I did have a ghostly experience one time when I was little, and I think my stuffed bunny rabbit was possessed by something because it started making a really creepy laugh on the other side of the apartment, of my parents' apartment. Say more. It's a very long story. I think it's going to take about 30 minutes for me to tell the entire thing. So I'm just going to leave it at ghost stuffed bunny rabbit. Okay, well, I ask because this episode, inspired by Matty Diop's gorgeous and ghoulish directorial debut, Atlantics, we'll be talking about supernatural love stories. But before all that, Anna, what have you been watching? I've been watching one thing, but I've been shamed into not saying what it is. First of all, I'm a vampire slayer. What have we told you to be watching? You have told me to talk about... The actual shameful thing I've been watching, which is season three of The Crown. If I may offer two pieces of advice, never turn your back on true love. And the second? Watch out for your family. They mean well. No, they don't. Now, I will caveat this by saying that I have actually not seen The Crown seasons one and two with Claire Foy. I don't think you need to. I don't think I need to either. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it just kind of drew me in. And then actually, I really, really enjoyed it. On days like today, ask yourself, in the time I've been on the throne, what have I actually achieved? Well, other people has changed. If that man wins, he wants us out. This is no longer peacetime. I don't know if you've noticed, Henry. I'm not British. Shock and horror. I know, exactly. So it's actually been extremely interesting because I'm a bit detached from the political implications of watching a show like The Crown Mm -hmm. at a time like this. And I've just really enjoyed it a bit at face value. And these people who are real people are kind of just as characters as opposed to who they really are and what all the cultural baggage that those figures and those particular people have behind kind of the glossy production and the starry cast. It's just a really beautifully written drama. This country was still great when I came to the throne. All that's happened on my watch is the place has fallen apart. You cannot flinch. It's only fallen apart if we say it has. That's the thing about the monarchy. 
we paper over the cracks. And if you want to get a good representation of normal British people, the royal family are the perfect people to watch. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's between you and the royal family for me. (laughs) I know which one I would choose. Anyway, I've been watching The Amazing Jonathan. Put your hands together for Amazing Jonathan. This is a documentary by a director called Ben Berman. I feel dizzy. You need answers, buddy. Why are you even asking me that? It's called The Amazing Jonathan. Actually, it should be called The Struggling Ben Berman because it's one of those documentaries that is far more about the director than its subject. And it becomes that very consciously. And it's a really interesting film because of that. So The Amazing Jonathan is a magician in um, Las Vegas. Yes, Las Vegas. And he's a kind of stunt magician who pretends to cut off his arm and put nails through his tongue. And he was quite kind of outrageous and silly and was big in the 80s and had a health problem and then recently got told that he was going to die very soon. I've performed in over 100 TV shows, made millions of dollars, and everything came crashing down when I was told I had a year to live. It's not a joke. So, like flies to honey, loads of documentary filmmakers started to crowd around him because of his death, right? And the film talks very explicitly about how documentary filmmaking deals with those kind of situations where the subject that you're talking about is actually interesting because of someone's downfall and misfortune and inevitable demise. What if he died on stage with people laughing because they thought it was part of his bit? Do you think there's any chance he's fabricating his diagnosis? So the film kind of threads that needle of trying to talk about why you film a subject why you have to try and look at the subject for themselves rather than your view of it, but why it's impossible to only really tell your story rather than a subject story. The Amazing Jonathan setting off a little bit of a comeback tour. Is he still sick? You know, you just never know with him. Is this a joke? Every morning I wake up worrying that he's going to not be alive anymore. Everyone thought that the whole dying bit was a prank. It's very complex and twisty, quite funny, very, very self-involved on the director's part, but he admits that, so that's okay. Off to Atlantics, and uh, this is a spoiler warning. We're going to spoil all of this film. So if you haven't watched Atlantics yet, go and watch it first and then come back and listen to us. Set in a seaside town on the Senegalese coast, director Matty Diop's film delivers a story haunted by loss, romance and the spectre of the migrant crisis. Ada is engaged to wealthy, shallow Omar, but she's really in love with Solomon, a labourer who, like most of the town's workers, has been bilked out of his wages by the local property tycoon. Solomon sets off on a boat to Spain. The boat sinks, he drowns, and yet, turns out nothing, not marriage, poverty, nor death, can stop the path of true love. So I watched this film first at its premiere in Cannes a few months ago, but you watched it just this week. What did you think? I found it really interesting. I thought the mix of migrant crisis and love story, when I read the synopsis of it, I thought it was a really difficult needle to thread because thousands of migrants have died on that boat journey from Senegal to Europe. And at the same time, you want to tell a love story that feels true between two characters. And I'm not saying that love is inherently trite or icky, but it's very difficult to show that two people truly love each other sometimes and have that romance and have the deeply serious wider world issues of politics going on, which is the migrant crisis. But I thought this film did it absolutely beautifully. 
Oh, totally. And it's actually really interesting that the first thing that you bring up is the migrant crisis, because as a sort of as a contextual aside, I grew up in Spain where, you know, I was inundated constantly growing up with terrible news about migrants kind of being lost at sea or struggling to reach the borders of Spain from Senegal and kind of from other African countries. So this is something that I've always grown up with and had at the forefront. Thousands of young men have left this fishing town to attempt the journey to Europe. More than 500 never made it. The Spanish are working directly with the Senegalese government to curb the number of undocumented migrants fleeing to the Canary Islands. In the past three years, more than 10,000 men, women and children have died trying to cross this stretch of water. Many young men are still keen to get into one of the overcrowded smugglers' boats if they're able to scrape together the money for the trip. But at the same time, when I was experiencing for the first time, I always saw it first as a love story. And that's what really drew me in because the migrant crisis and those narratives and those images, which I had grown up with, were the background. And it's not to say that it's not important, but it's thematic. And I think a director is lyrical and as sensitive as Matty Diop, mm. is able to thread both those narratives, one that it's extremely social realism and a profoundly romantic Princess Bride-esque one true love love story without making either one of them seem corny or tried or repetitive. In fact, she sort of brings a new light to both a story that's very often been told and sort of tinted with poverty porn brushes. And I think one of them, it's not exactly about the migrant crisis, but one of the films that always references is Alejandro Iñárritu's Beautiful, yeah. which I despise with my entire being. ¿Estás listo para irte? No. Tú y yo sabemos lo que sufren los muertos que se van con deudas. Yo no me voy a morir, vea. No. Which also tries it to... It is, as you described, basic. It's basic poverty porn, yeah. and it tries to walk that line of sort of phantasmagorical, social, magical realism. And I personally think it fails, whether it's Matty Diop, because of her own cinematic legacy, because of, you know, um, who her family is, who her uncle was, and also the fact that her own dual identity as a French-born, half-French, half-Senegalese filmmaker, she is looking at things from a completely different perspective, and she's talked about how informative was her first trip to Senegal, a country that is in her heritage, but that she had never experienced. So mm. that gives her a very unique perspective. And this film really draws, I think, influences from both kind of Latin American magical realism, from European social realism, from her own experiences in film. You know, she started off as an actress for Claire Denis. So one of the greatest living filmmakers alive in French cinema, also someone who has done quite a few films, quite a few stories set in colonial Africa, her own persona and her life brings such a distinct mix of cultures, cinematic influences, and a wholly different approach to this human story. And I think that's kind of the element that makes Atlantic so bizarrely fresh, even though it's taking things and elements that we recognize from so many other places. You know, we can go into not just the migrant crisis stories, but the 
one true love kind of romantic aspect of it, you know, the wide-eyed zombies, the gritty city drama, the thriller of trying to, the detectives trying to chase down what actually happened, you know, the drama of the families and the women especially left behind by the men who went out to sea to try to reach Spain. The dynamic between the workers and the factory owner who just very blatantly and dismissively denies them about three months of wages. And in the meantime, we see how he's built a big old mansion for himself. You can't talk about it as a single genre, but I'm going to. It's also a really excellent zombie film. And it's really hard to make a really excellent zombie film because there's been so many of them. And I I hesitate to call it zombie film exactly because it is it's kind of more deft than that i mean i know Mm. that deaf zombie films do exist but it's kind of a ghost story that gives you this real sense of the supernatural as something that is deeply real at the same time and that's really hard to do i think so you get this weird mix of like i don't know the children of the corn are your mommy and daddy around they're in the cornfield what are they doing there all the grown-ups are there Uh, are they working there though or having a meeting no Isaac put them there. Who's Isaac? Our leader. Leader of what? Of everybody. And then... And uh, I walked with a zombie. I walked with a zombie. Trying to tell me that the voodoo priest could cure Mrs. Holland. Yeah, and then it reminded me of kind of, I mean, all horror films are to an extent like an allegory for something that's going on in the real world, but it reminded me of a film, there was a film a long time ago called We Are What We Are, which was a Mexican film. Mm-hmm. It's about cannibalism, it wasn't quite zombies. Pusiste en riesgo a la familia, Alfredo. Pues esto les va a pasar si se vuelven a acercar a mi familia. But that was talking about the political situation in Mexico and how basically society is eating itself in a kind of slightly obvious allegory. But it, it still really worked. And this film has that similar tone of you don't have to work to believe the fantasy, if you see what I mean. Like the yeah. fantasy of the ghosts coming back from the sea and haunting this town at night is beautifully exposed and realised. And you, you believe that instantly. As soon mm. as you see these kind of cloudy-eyed ghouls wandering the streets and coming back to the living to kind of, in a kind of weird Christmas carol way, say, you know, repent for your sins yes. and pay me the money you're owed, it feels real. And it feels real, I think, because of the way she shot it before the ghosts arrive. And mm-hmm. crucial to that is the sea, which she shoots beautifully. And she makes the sea look terrifying and loving and eternal and undying like a zombie in its own way. Well, she gives the sea personality. It essentially becomes... I've read this wonderful review that kind of posited that the sea became a reflection of Ada, our main character's emotional landscape as well. So when she's, you know, having her beautiful teenage romance with Suleiman... (laughs) You know, it's it's kind of all very graceful Sunset and over beautiful. The sea exactly. And, yeah, soft and then waves. it becomes um sort of graveyard-ish, you know. It's the place that basically took not only the man that she loves, but every other man that she knew. And it's taken, you know, you can almost extrapolate that it's taken a whole generation of young men into it and murdered them. And then it becomes this menacing figure that's always in the background and it's always there and it's so overpowering but then also even at the end when Ada kind of the last shot I think is even of the sea and it's Ada kind of coming to terms not just with what's happened to her but with who she is and very 
open to whatever the future might hold to her. And that's a very empowering shot. You know, it's melancholic, it's sad, but it's completely engaging with those feelings as opposed to trying to deny them and trying to turn her back on them. Yeah. That's a bit too poetic, isn't it? (laughs) But back to the zombies. (laughs) Well, no, actually, like sticking with the seaside for a little bit, I think it strikes me that horror and the sea go together more obviously than a lot of filmmakers have realized, right? And I'm trying to think of other seaside horror films. I mean, the the most recent one I think of is Jordan Peele's Us. There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. But y'all scared of a family? Hi, can I help you? Zora. Put your shoes on. If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy. Which has the sea as a kind of wow, the lighthouse, which is going to become the lighthouse, which I haven't seen yet with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, but. Verging away from horror a little bit, that idea of the sea as an undying force that is neither good nor ill, it just is, right? It it really reminded me of a film called The Possibilities Are Endless, which is a documentary about Edwin Collins, which was out a few years ago, which I absolutely loved. But that was Edwin Collins' story after he'd suffered a debilitating stroke, I believe it was, and he was coming back from that stroke, regaining his speech. I must get better I must experience the world, whatever that is. But that was cut so beautifully with images of the sea, which again sounds trite, but wasn't because the sea was this powerful force that was literally washing through the film at all times. The, The message being you're not permanent, we are all basically nothing, but the sea will always remain and is terrifying because of that, and we can't escape that. And I think this film, along with the Edwin Collins doc, does that so beautifully. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And I think to kind of add to your point is the fact that... W- the sea really helps not let it fall into melodramatic misery porn because we don't actually see the deaths of the young men who go out in the boat to try to reach Spain. But it is, you know, it's very explicit. And actually, it's kind of detached from the misery aspect of it because it's the sea that's washed them away and that's like taken their lives. But it doesn't really focus on the so much on kind of watching them suffer but it's just implied that they've just disappeared into the sea. And there's this wonderful quote by Matty Diop in an interview in The Guardian, which she says that when she started realizing all of the stuff that was happening when she was visiting Senegal, when she started looking out into the sea, suddenly she looked at it as a graveyard. Mm. You know, it's not deliberate. It's just there and it's going to kill all these people because of a multitude of other reasons. But the sea itself is not the evil force. Yeah, totally. Moving away from the seaside for just a second, what do you think it is about supernatural love stories like this that remain compelling? What what are we trying to get from these stories of people loving across the divide between life and death? I mean, I was thinking about this 
last night. I don't really know. I mean, it's a very recognizable cinematic trope. You know, you can even go way to kind of Western cinema in Hollywood and think about ghosts. You know, that's the first film that came to mind of a man coming back from the dead as a ghost just to make sure that his loved one, his um wife is okay and that she's taking care of, that she's not in danger. I get a message from Sam. What? Sam Wheat? He asked me to call. Once you go to police, he said it was a setup. He was murdered. She said Sam knew who killed him. Are you out of your mind? I mean, what are you going to tell the police? She knew things, private things. I know about the green underwear that you wrote your name on. It's kind of the same thing. It's, you know, the idea that if it's true love, someone will just do whatever's necessary to go back and protect or deliver whatever message they need to deliver that they couldn't finish off. And there's also, you know, true Like your bunny rabbit. Well, like, not, let's not get into that. That was creepy. Still creeps me out. It's also a way of helping the other person deal with their grief. And that's so, that's solace. And that's also, you know, reflected in films like Truly Madly Deeply, you know, a British film with um, Alan Rickman. It's tragic. One minute he has a sore throat, then he's having an examination, the next moment he stopped breathing. Are you here? You are here. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> And it's kind of that same element of, yes, this person is gone, but they're not really gone. The memory of them will remain and there's certain potentially unfinished business, which you can interpret as Ada in the case of Atlantics, just processing and dealing with herself and the figure of Suleiman coming back as, you know, possessing this young police officer's body in order to tell her certain things and sort of console her Mm. about his own demise and the fact that he did, in fact, really, truly love her. And that's never going to go away. And that's never going to be shaken or ruined by anyone, whether it is by their own life decisions, whether it is by the crumbling of that relationship in another alternative universe, or whether it's just kind of by the sea taking him and killing him. It's just always going to remain pure. And that's what she should grasp onto. Yeah, yeah. I love that idea of someone dying at the right moment when you're in love with them as well, right? Like, because the kind of tragedy and the beauty of a death like Solomon's is that he dies at the peak of their love. It's kind of Romeo and Juliet thing, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, that makes that person perfect forever, right? Mm-hmm. They're kind of captured in the ether. They're fixed in that moment. So you never have that point where you have to live with them for too long and they haven't taken the bins out and they're farting in bed and they've just said the same anecdote over and over again and you're bored of them. Like they haven't died at that point, which would be quite an interesting film, I think. But um, <laughs> I'm going to get to writing that one. But they've died at the point where you're most in love with them. And that's that makes it heartbreaking and it makes a great story. But it also means that the thing that you've fallen in love with is by necessity unreal in both senses, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And it also kind of helps... It's very beautiful the way that her grief is portrayed in the film as well, because she's deeply suffering for the loss of Suleiman and sort of really hanging on to any thread of hope that he might not be entirely gone, that out of all of the men that perished, he might have survived in any way because of the power of their love, right? But at the same time, the fact that she, the intensity of her feelings and the intensity of her grief and her longing for him really helps her understand the fact that the marriage that she's about to enter into, this arranged marriage with a very wealthy and very crass businessman, is not the thing that she needs to do, that it's never going to make her happy. And it kind of really helps solidify her identity and her value system as well. Yeah, totally. 
And to broaden that out a bit, like her relationship with Omar, the guy she's going to marry, who's this kind of wealthy, not exactly a playboy, but he's very much distracted by his business, right? He doesn't really, you don't get the sense he really appreciates her. He oh, appreciates no, the fact object. that she's a wife. Like yeah. that's, that's it, just the wife, right? And just something to tick off before he goes off on business again. Mm-hmm. Um, Omar is interesting because he's, a, he's the character that is, in essence, the kind of Western development of Senegal, right? He's like the tower, but in human form, in that he wants a better life for himself, but his better life is very much material, in that the thing that he gives her as almost a wedding gift is uh, an iPhone mm. with a pink back cover. Mm-hmm. And she's slightly bemused and also grateful for it. And there's that kind of complicated relationship between development, which is... I might not necessarily want this, but you're bringing it to me and forcing it upon my life, which obviously goes to colonialism and much bigger subjects Mm. as well. And interestingly, she kind of rejects that and gives the phone back, partly because it's from Omar, but also partly because that type of development isn't her. And I was wondering how much Matty Diop was saying, you know, Western culture is all very well to some degree, but we don't have to take all of it on board and grab it and follow it quite so wholeheartedly. And then by extension of that, actually, it's ironic that Suleiman is trying to make a better life for himself because presumably he still wants the same things that Omar has, right? Like he wants he wants to support his family, but also he wants to get to a point where he's comfortable, as everybody does. So how it's quite a complex relationship with That's the idea That's quite interesting because I think I read the iPhone kind of as a method of control, yeah. which kind of ties back to the way that Omar treats. The relationship he has with Ada is very much materialistic, you know, like Oh, you like said. a monitoring device on her. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's all about showcasing wealth, showcasing beauty, but not really appreciating, you know, he wants her presumably because she's young and beautiful and she's kind of, you know easily easily controlled in a way and the iphone is both a symbol of his monetary power but also the fact that he then will own everything that she has um one of the things as well that we haven't really touched on because we focused a lot on ada and suleiman's relationship and kind of the love triangle with omar as well there's this really phantasmagorical image of kind of all of the women zombified walking towards the rich man's house, kind of walking through the graveyard and um, really walking through traffic and everybody kind of stopping and starting around them, completely single-minded and kind of focused on this one thing as they're being possessed by the presumably ghosts of the young men who drowned. And kind of what did you think about that particular imagery? Because it hints at horror, but it's so much wider than just that, isn't it? Yeah, it does. It hints at horror and that kind of mindlessness is like the stereotypical thing that we see from a zombie, although they, they don't have a mindlessness to think about it. They have a purpose, right? And their purpose is to bring a message to the living from the dead. And so, again, it's, it feels like that Christmas carol thing of you need to learn the error of your ways as a rich, wealthy, privileged person. And only people who have suffered to the point of death from your treatment can ever tell you that message and i think film does that really well but i think film always has a problem when it comes to ghost stories or zombies is that the real effect of those characters of people who have died is the absence of them and film because of the meat is a visual medium has to show that to people you can't explore that world of that absence without seeing that person even as a kind of slightly mindless zombie representative of that person and this is where i take my little boat off to video game island because i would say that video games by dint of being an interactive experience allow you to feel the absence of a character much more uniquely and much more intimately in that you can explore an environment that that person lived in and feel the objects that were close to them and the world that they had and 
they might have been dead for centuries, as a lot of video games use that trope, but you still have an active story that feels alive because you are in their personal space and actually physically through a controller picking up something that they used and had in their life. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but I am saying that that is, in terms of ghost stories or zombie stories, that's where video games can offer you that richness, I reckon. Whereas film, it's more of a challenge, partly because of the long history of films that done it before, but it's more of a challenge to feel the character because you are seeing a representation of them and you have to see that representation of them. Games that show that kind of absence, not necessarily of people who've died, but people who've just gone. So there's a the game called Gone Home where you explore a house and you just interact with objects to try and find out what's happened to the family that lived there. Dear Katie, so much has changed, even just since you've been away. We moved into this house. It doesn't feel real. And then even on the kind of slightly more shooty side of things, games like Fallout, which are set in post-apocalyptic worlds, but you're trying to reconstruct how these millions of people died by exploring and interacting with an, an environment that is in a game world that still tries to show you that ghostly world at the same time. The Earth was nearly wiped clean of life. A great cleansing, an atomic spark struck by human hands quickly raged out of control. Spears of nuclear fire rained from the skies. That's so interesting because I think you're absolutely right. The only kind of elements of that touch and kind of the absence that we feel in the film is really only Ada remembering yeah. and revisiting the places that she shared with Suleiman and kind of focusing on the objects that he had touched or that they had shared. You have to feel Suleiman through Ada. And yeah. that, that is completely the point. That is the more human way, right? Yeah. Like, But actually... In the real world, if somebody dies, we have all of this ephemera around mm. them and all of this stuff that we remember of them that is linked to physical objects, right? And so you can pick up a photo on the most obvious example or even, I don't know, a guitar they, they used to play and you can feel that and feel something that they used to physically touch and video games do that digitally and that can be triply heartbreaking. That's it for this episode. Atlantics, which screened at this year's London Film Festival, is on Netflix from 29th of November. The Bigger Picture, presented by the BFI, is brought to you by us, Henry, Anna and our producer, Pete. Find me and Anna on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna... Anna B. Demented. Pete is on Twitter too. He's at Peter Sale. Pete is on a website. That's petersale.co.uk. But then Pete is everywhere because Pete is dead. Not really. Hi, Pete. He can't say something, but he is alive, believe me. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, your last line this episode comes from one of the most beautiful ghost stories ever recorded. I'd rather live in his world than live without him in mine. He's definitely still alive. I'm still looking alive, at him. Yeah. But it's kind of troubling now. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.